When someone decides to follow Christ, their life is changed forever. Death turns to life. Despair changes to hope. Dark becomes light. It's a deep, quiet moment that could easily be kept hidden. But a change this profound can't stay a secret for long. It's time for the world to see what God has done. For we were once in darkness, but now we are light in the Lord. Baptism is an act of faith. It's a celebration, a beacon cutting through the fog, a message to the world that a lost cause has been redeemed, that God is here and He is transforming lives. So embrace this moment. Declare His glory. And let your light shine. Find your place in your Bible with me at Acts chapter 8. While you're doing that, you probably noticed that we're in the process of remodeling here on the platform. You noticed anything at all different? You like it, don't you? How many of you like it? And if you don't like it, I'm sorry. Um, it's too late. Our electrician is here who came, ex did extra work to make all of this possible. We appreciate you and your wife being here today. Uh, back in the back booth back there, in the, in the sound booth back there, uh, we have the company, Greg Withrow and his company, who installed all of this and who are still installing it. And so um, the only thing that I can see that's going to have to be changed is that Mary will never be happy over there in that corner. <laughs> Her piano is going to have to come forward. Uh, for her to be happy with any of these changes. <laughs> Acts chapter 8, beginning in verse 26. Now an angel of the Lord spoke to Philip, saying, Arise and go toward the south along the road which goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is desert. So he arose and went, and behold, a man of Ethiopia, a eunuch of great authority under Candace, the queen of the Ethiopians, who had charge of all her treasury and had come to Jerusalem to worship, was returning. And sitting in his chariot, he was reading Isaiah the prophet. Then the spirit said to Philip, go near and overtake this chariot. So Philip ran to him and heard him reading the prophet Isaiah and said, do you understand what you're reading? And he said, how can I unless someone guides me? And he asked Philip to come up and sit with him. The place in the scripture which he read was this. He was led as a sheep to the slaughter, and as a lamb before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. In his humiliation, his justice was taken away, and who will declare his generation? For his life is taken from the earth." So the eunuch answered Philip and said, I ask you, of whom does the prophet say this, of himself or of some other man? Then Philip opened his mouth and beginning at, his, at the scripture, preached Jesus to him. Now as they went down the road, they came to some water and the eunuch said, see, here's water. What hinders me from being baptized? Then Philip said, if you believe with all your heart, you may. 
And he answered and said, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. So he commanded the chariot to stand still. And both Philip and the eunuch went down into the water and he baptized him. Now when they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord caught Philip away so that, he, so that the eunuch saw him no more. And he went on his way rejoicing. But Philip was found at Azotus. And passing through, he preached in all the cities till he came to Caesarea. Let's pray together. Father, in these next few minutes, I pray that you will speak to our hearts about this ordinance of the church that we call baptism. Lord, I pray that you will help us to see the significance and the importance of it and that we will not play it down, but that, Lord, we will see to it that our lives are submitted to your will in following through in obeying you in baptism. Lord, we ask you now for your spirit to be at work in our midst as he has been throughout this service and especially to guide us into the truth as only he can do. In your name I pray, amen. I don't remember exactly what year it was. It's been a number of years ago, but I was watching on television uh, Dr. Charles Stanley and the In Touch broadcast. This has been far enough ago that he was still in his original location on Peachtree Road down in downtown Atlanta. Mary and I have been there on a number of occasions. And he was still in that very stately old building, that very traditional-looking old building. And on this particular Sunday, he was preaching on the subject of baptism. And I was interested I had already been saved and baptized, obviously, but I was interested to hear what he had to say. Though I'm ashamed to tell you, I don't remember all of his points of the message. But I do remember one of the illustrations that he gave that day. He reached down underneath the pulpit, you know, the top of the pulpit. He reached down underneath the pulpit and he pulled out some paper that he had stored underneath that pulpit area. And he held it up before the people. Now, if you're old enough, you'll remember this. If you're younger, you, you might not remember this, but it was that kind of paper that used to be used with a dot matrix printer. Um, they still use those printers in some places, but most of us are familiar with laser jets and ink jets and you know, copiers and those kinds of things. But it was used, it was this kind of paper that was used in those dot matrix printers so that you had alongside these sprocket holes so that it could feed the paper up into the printer and it was connected so that when you got everything printed, you would tear off those pages and then you would tear them apart one at a time and then you'd tear off the edges. And then you'd have your eight and a half by 11 sheet of paper. Well, he's holding several sheets of that in his hand. And he holds it up like this to his right side. Holding one of those sheets, he lets go of the other sheets. And there's about five or six pages. They're all connected. They don't fall apart. They're still connected. They fall down toward the floor. Now, he was a very tall man, probably didn't reach the floor. I don't remember them reaching the floor, but... Uh, there were at least five or six sheets of paper that were connected. You couldn't read what was on that paper. You could just see that it was sort of a spreadsheet kind of a layout. And he went on to say this. There are these many people who have received Christ as their Savior through our ministry in the last number of whatever number of days he gave who have not yet followed through 
to obey the Lord in the matter of believers' baptism. It felt like one of those moments when if you haven't paid your property tax (laughs) and you pick up the newspaper and you go to the back of the paper and your name is listed because you've not paid your property tax. And it was a, a striking moment that got your attention because there were a long list of people who had trusted in Jesus Christ but had not yet publicly professed their faith through believer's baptism. Well, today I want to talk about baptism. We're leaving our series on 1 Corinthians entitled Dear Paul. We'll go back to that after Mother's Day. But these two Sundays, we're leaving that series for me to talk today specifically about this matter of baptism. And while I don't have a sheet of paper to unfurl before you with the names of all of the people in a spreadsheet fashion of those who've trusted Christ but haven't followed the Lord in believer's baptism, I do hope that you'll listen carefully to this message because there are many amongst us who know Jesus but have never professed Jesus through following in in, in baptism. And I want to talk about baptism from what I think is one of the fascinating stories of the book of Acts, and I'll explain to you why I think that in just a moment. But one of the fascinating stories in the book of Acts that's about this man who is called an Ethiopian eunuch. And the way I want to break this story up, if you're writing down notes, is I want to break it up into into five segments. There's five headings. Uh, There's five movements that are in this story that I want us to talk about for a few minutes. And I want to do it this way because I want everybody to go home with something, having learned something from the Scripture. But I especially want those who have never followed the Lord and believers' baptism to be challenged today to step forward and take your stand with the Lord Jesus Christ. We begin this morning talking about the earnest seeker. The earnest seeker. This particular person we're talking about is, in fact, this Ethiopian eunuch about which we have just read. Let me give you a little bit of background about this man so that you'll understand him. He comes from Africa. He is out of Africa. When you're thinking about Ethiopia Ethiopia in his day, you're, you're thinking south of Egypt. You're thinking down in what is the territory today that's called Sudan. And he lives down here in this territory. It means that he would have been a dark-skinned man that came from what was considered in the first century to be a a very exotic kind of a nation, sort of a mysterious kind of a nation. As a matter of fact, it's said about uh, Ethiopia that it was considered by some to be the ends of the earth. And probably if you're located in Jerusalem and you're thinking about Ethiopia and going Uh, down to Ethiopia, it must seem like to you as if you're going to the ends of the earth. But here is one of the things that I think makes this story so interesting. Most of the time when you talk about the opening of the gospel to the Gentile world, you go to Acts chapter 10 and to a man named Cornelius. And obviously, he is a Gentile. And Peter does open the door of the gospel to the Gentile world through this man. But the reason the book of Acts goes that direction and uses that particular story is because the gospel is going to go to Europe. It's going to be interesting to the Roman hearers of the book of Acts. But even before Cornelius, the Gentile who became a believer in Jesus himself, 
There is this man, this Ethiopian eunuch, who many believe, I believe, was a Gentile himself. And he has a very unique title. He's called a eunuch. In the first century, to be called a eunuch could be a euphemistic title, a title that was used to refer to somebody who was a high-ranking military or political figure. But I think more likely in this text, it refers to someone who has experienced the physical reality of what it means to be a eunuch. And the reason I say that is because that aspect of him is mentioned five times. You remember Luke is the writer of the book of Acts under the inspiration of the Spirit of God. But Luke was a medical doctor, and Luke would have understood the physical reality of being a eunuch, and he mentions it five times in this text such that I believe that he's talking about somebody who has been through that reality in his own physical life. And why would they do that in the ancient world, the ancient world of, of that day? Well, part of the reason is because they didn't want somebody who was working amongst the royalty to have a child with somebody that was royalty and have a claim on that royalty. And so they would submit themselves to this physical act that caused them unable to be able to have children. And here he's called the Ethiopian eunuch. One thing about being a eunuch would mean that he couldn't be a proselyte to Judaism. He could be a God-fearer, which he is, but he could not be a proselyte to Judaism. In Deuteronomy chapter 23, verse 1, uh, uh, eunuchs were excluded from the covenant of God, becoming a proselyte in the covenant of God. We know about this man as well that he's wealthy. We, we have to know he's wealthy because just of the length of the trip that he has to make in order to get to Jerusalem. Now, this is not the way you want to find out how much distance there is between Sudan and Israel. I took Khartoum, Sudan, and Jerusalem, Israel, and I put it into my GPS. And it says there are, if you travel the roads they recommend, that there are 1,500 or so miles between Sudan and Jerusalem, Israel. The average person could travel in that day about 20 to 25 miles Think about this for a moment. If you divide 25 into 1,500, that means you've got 60 days, such that the scholars tell us that probably 45 to 60 days it would have taken him to make the journey from Ethiopia to Jerusalem, and another 45 to 60 days to go from Jerusalem back to Ethiopia. That would take an enormous amount of money. There are people who are traveling with him. There's food that has to be bought. There are various other needs that have to be met in the course of this trip. And besides that, when he gets there, he purchases something that very few people have. He has a scroll with the prophet Isaiah written on it. That would have been something that cost an exorbitant amount of money. You can imagine him as the minister of finance in Egypt, or excuse me, in uh, Ethiopia. You can imagine that he did have money at his disposal, but there are very few people who own a copy of God's Word in this day. And here he is traveling back from Jerusalem, back down uh, to Ethiopia, and he owns and has in his possession a copy of an Isaiah scroll. That only indicates to us that he was somebody that had some measure of means, financial means, to be able to have a trip of this nature that took that long 
to be able to ask to be away from his duties in the country, to be able to make a trip this long that would take that much time for him to make as a journey. The one thing we know about this man is that he was seeking God. There's something about Jerusalem. He knows and he wants to go see for himself. There's something about Jerusalem that has touched his heart, something about the God of the Jews, Jehovah God, that has touched his heart. We know that the Gentile people grew weary under their pagan gods, little g gods, that they were weary because those gods were powerless to help them. They could do nothing for them. They were just statues of rock or wood that were made with man's hands. They couldn't do anything for them. And besides that, what went with that kind of paganism, that pagan idolatry, were all of these pagan morals. And there was a whole Gentile world that was weary of that kind of paganism. And maybe that's what caused this Ethiopian eunuch to take note of the God of Israel. There's something different about those people. He's heard about them, and he wants to go find out more about them. And he begins making this journey or Maybe he's on this journey because of a promise that God made to eunuchs. In Isaiah chapter 56, verses 3 to 5, God says in his coming kingdom, there's going to be a place even for the eunuchs. They might not have been people amongst his people, but if they followed the law and they kept the Sabbath and they did what he said in his kingdom, there was going to be a place even for the eunuchs. And you can only imagine that this man living with that physical reality must have wondered often, is there a place for me? But there's something about this man, this earnest seeker that causes him to head to Jerusalem and take this long journey because his heart is hungry for something that's missing. That brings me to the second stage of this story. And that's what we'll call the obedient Christian. The obedient Christian. His name is Philip. Philip is quite a character, especially in the opening chapters of the book of Acts, isn't he? If you remember early on in the New Testament church, when the church was birthed into existence in Acts chapter 2, the number of believers was growing so quickly. And part of what they did was they made sure that the widows were taken care of. But the result was that there were so many widows that needed to make sure they had food that the apostles could not keep up with all of it. And it was taking them away from the word of God and taking them away from the prayer in which they were to be involved. And so they speak to the Christians in the city of Jerusalem. They say, you choose seven men. And then he goes through and he gives a list of the qualities, the characteristics of the kind of men to be chosen. These are what I often refer to as the prototypes of what deacons are supposed to, be, supposed to be. Men who are men of character, men who are men of service, men that are willing to serve others and care for others and do on behalf of the apostles, in this case on behalf of pastors, what they cannot do and still do the things that only they can do. So they choose these seven men. One of them is this man, Philip. Philip was quite a man. Uh, Philip, we know, had four daughters. And it says about the four daughters that they prophesied. 
It means that this man had raised his family right. This man had invested in his family and his daughters had faith in the one true God. And it won't be until chapter 21 that you hear his name again, after chapter 8, that you'll hear his name again. That's more than 20 years later. He's living down in Caesarea, and he's still doing what he's been doing here in Acts chapter 8. He's still introducing people to Jesus Christ to such a degree that they call him Philip the Evangelist. But what I want you to notice specifically is that this is a Christian who was ready to obey God, whatever God told him to do. Notice, if you will, back to chapter 8 and verse 26, and I want you to see the instantaneous obedience of this Christian man. Verse 26, it says, Now an angel of the Lord spoke to Philip, saying, Arise and go toward the south. And if God told me to do that, I'd do that right now. The south. The Lord's coming back through the south, through the Atlanta International Airport. No, we don't want that. He'll be lost in the Atlanta City, in the Atlanta International Airport. Go to the south, Philip. Go to the south. And notice verse 27, so he arose and went. Not a hesitation. There's not a moment of, of, of tarrying to, to argue with God. Lord, do you know where you're telling me to go? Do you know what you're asking me to do? You notice, if you will, down in verse 29, He's now out on this road where the Ethiopian eunuch is riding along in his chariot. And it says, then the spirit said to Philip, go near and overtake this chariot. And what does he do? Argue with God? Not at all. Verse 30, so Philip ran to him. Or you get down to verse 30. And you see, he says that the spirit of the Lord caught Philip away. In other words, after this encounter with this Ethiopian eunuch, God in some miraculous way snatches Philip away. The word caught away is the word for rapture. He raptures him away. And what do you find Philip doing? Exactly what Philip's been doing the entire time. Down in verse 40, Philip was found in Azotus. He preached in all the cities till he came to Caesarea. You know what you find in this man, Philip? You find a man who is an obedient Christian. You find a man who was ready to obey God. You find a man who was listening to the moving of the Spirit of God in his life. Somebody who's willing to do whatever it is that God tells him to do. But let me ask you a question. Are you an obedient Christian? When God shows you something out of his word that he tells you that you're to do or that I'm to do, are you willing and ready immediately to obey him and to do exactly what he says to do, even if you can't understand what he's telling you? Think about this for a moment. Earlier in this chapter, Philip is preaching. And it says in verse 6, he's preaching to the multitudes. To the multitudes he's preaching. And God comes to him at the mega church and says, I want you to go out where there's one man. And I want you to witness to that man. I want you to explain Jesus to that man. And what does Philip do? I mean, stop and think about it. If you were the pastor of a mega church and there were multitudes of people who were being saved and multitudes of people who were following the Lord and believers' baptism, would you want to leave that? And yet Philip was ready to go instantaneously 
to the one man who's on the road headed back toward Ethiopia that's found down here in Gaza. Are we that kind of an obedient Christian? Are we the kind of Christian that senses the moving of the Spirit of God in our hearts and in our lives? Most often, God guides us through his word. Most often, God takes us to some scripture, and God speaks to us off the pages of his, of his, of his word. But sometimes there are those moving, moving of the spirit, there is that moving of the spirit of God within our hearts where we know that God is telling us to do something. We don't hear audible voices, but we know that God is moving us in a specific direction. It might not make sense to us at all. It may seem completely out of sorts with what we think is to be successful and what we think is to have more impact. And yet God says, what I want you to do is leave the crowd that are responding to your message, and I want you to go to that desert road. Are we willing to obey God in that fashion? Can I just tell you that we will never reach people with the gospel unless there are spirit-led, obedient Christians that are willing to do what he says. Spirit-led obedient Christians that are willing to do what he says. Young people, the young people, the young crowd that's amongst us. Have you ever asked the Lord to speak to your heart about what he wants to do in and through your life? Have you ever been abiding in the Lord to such a place that you sense the movement of God directing you somewhere where he wants you to go? Have you ever felt the call of God that your family looked at and they said, you're crazy for doing that. You're leaving behind all of this potential and all of this opportunity and all of this education. I was moved when I read the story in the last couple of weeks about Granger Smith, a country musician whose star was rising his music was becoming increasingly more popular. And yet Granger Smith walked away, is walking away from a music career that could make him millions of dollars because he believes God has called him to do something greater and more significant with his life. Don't misunderstand me. If God calls you to be a doctor, be a doctor. If God calls you to be a lawyer, do something else. No, no. If God calls you to be a lawyer, be a lawyer. If God calls you to be a teacher, be a teacher. If God calls you to, to be a mechanic, be a mechanic. But have you ever stopped young people and asked the question, Lord, what would you have me to do? And have you ever listened to the promptings of the Word of God and the promptings of the Spirit of God within you? Because God might want to use you that in something that doesn't make sense to anybody else, but it's something that God wants to do to change people's lives. And let me just broaden that out to all of us. Do we live in such a way every single day where we're open to the Word of God and to the moving of the Spirit of God so that we can, change the, we can share the life-changing message of God with people? Are we doing that? Are we living in that way? 
Wouldn't it be great if we were doing what the early church was doing when the persecution came? And it says that they were scattered everywhere doing what? Playing Nintendo? They were scattered everywhere preaching the word. Just think for a moment. If every one of us were sensitive to the working of the Spirit of God, get directed by the word of God, willing to be obedient to God. Just imagine if this many people in this room and those that are watching us live, just imagine the impact we could have on a community if we were just available to God. And what I like about Philip, every time you find Philip, you find him preaching Jesus. He's just always talking about Jesus. Can you get a better subject than that? He's just always talking about Jesus. That's what he does here in this text. He, he's talking to this man about Jesus. Notice, if you will, back to chapter 8, verse 5, a text we didn't read. But just notice it. Then Philip went down to the city of Samaria and preached Christ to them. We look over to verse 35 of the same chapter. Then Philip opened his mouth and beginning at this scripture, preached Jesus to him. And you get over to verse 40, the end of the verse 40, he preached, you know that's Jesus, in all the cities till he came to Caesarea. Hey, Christians, it's great to talk about sports. It's great to talk about baseball. I've been talking to people about the new pitch clock and about the larger bases and what difference it makes in stealing bases, although Christians shouldn't be stealing bases anyway. <laughs> stealing bases... We've been talking about those kind of things, but can I tell you what people really need to know? They need to know the name of Jesus. That's what they really need to know. That brings me to the third section of this story. We'll call it the gospel conversation. We've used that phrase here, the gospel conversation. This man is riding along in this covered chariot Pulled, pulled by some kind of beast of burden, maybe an oxen, pulled by some kind of beast of burden. And he's unrolled part of the scroll of Isaiah, and he's reading along, and he's trying to understand. It's interesting. You know, it's interesting the coincidence or the coincidences that are found in this passage. Right. I mean, God guides Philip to the right desert road to find this man. The Ethiopian is reading from the right passage of Scripture in Isaiah 53. Water is going to be present for baptism when it comes time for baptism. And then the Spirit catches Philip away. This is no coincidence. This is all providence. God is at work here. God is doing something here. And this man is reading from Isaiah 53. Now, we don't know if he had the entire scroll or did he have just this section of the scroll. We don't know that. But we know that he was reading from the Septuagint. That's the Greek translation of the Hebrew text. And it says that he was reading it aloud. There's a reason why he was reading it aloud. If you've ever seen some of the Greek manuscripts, you will know that one of the things they did to save uh, to save space is they didn't put spaces between words. 
and they didn't have punctuation like you and I think of punctuation. And consequently, reading something aloud allowed you to pronounce the words so that you made sure you got exactly what was being said in the text. And he's reading along from Isaiah 53. Do you know what Isaiah 53 is about? It's about the suffering servant. The Jewish community has no place in their theology for a suffering, sorrowful Messiah. They have no place. They're looking for a conquering Messiah. They're looking for someone who's going to throw off the oppression that's against them. And yet here is this man reading from this pertinent passage of Scripture that if you just stop and you compare it to the ministry and the life of Jesus, you recognize that Isaiah is speaking about Jesus. And Philip says, do you understand what you're reading? And the man said, how can I unless somebody shows me? You know what Philip, uh, what he does? The man invites Philip to come up into the chariot with him, to sit down next to him, and to explain the Scripture. Would you not have loved to have been there to have listened in. I'd love to have been a fly on the wall, right? I mean, what an incredible conversation as he talks about the suffering servant and he connects him to Jesus Christ, the one who came to suffer for the sins of all mankind. Can you imagine that conversation? There's a gospel conversation that's going on here. And Philip was more than obliged to make the connections for this man, for this Ethiopian eunuch to Jesus. Do you see what's going on here? He starts with the scriptures, empowered by the Spirit, and speaks the message of Christ to this man. Did you hear that phrase, those phrases? He starts with the scriptures, empowered by the Spirit, to speak to this man this life-changing message of the gospel, and all three are still necessary today. They need the, we need the scriptures, we need the spirit of God's empowerment, and we need people like you and me to speak the message of the gospel, to have gospel conversations. And here's what's interesting. After he explains Jesus, it all comes down to one simple thing. Do you believe this, Mr. Ethiopian? You know what it takes to be saved? Well, there's a Long process, isn't there, Pastor? I've got to quit this and start that and got to be willing to do this and willing to start that. Or after I've been saved, I've got to be willing to do this, that, and the other. What does it take for a person to come into a right relationship with God through his son, the Lord Jesus Christ? It takes one word. You have to believe. You have to believe that life is in Jesus Christ, that Jesus is the Savior, that Jesus' sacrifice on the cross of Calvary was for your sins and for mine, and that he is your only hope of spending eternity with heaven. It is to believe that in him is eternal life forever. You understand that we don't want to make that confusing. John chapter 3, verse 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. For God did not send his, world, his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. Now listen carefully. He who believes in him is not condemned, but he who does not believe 
is condemned already. And the reason? Because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. And in those moments, this man put his faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and became a born-again Christian because when Philip asks him, when he's asked about baptism and Philip asks him, well, you have to believe with all your heart that Jesus is the Christ. Listen to what he responds at the end of verse 37. I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. Boom, salvation. Instantaneous. Automatically. He's born into the family of God. That brings me to the fourth movement of this story, and that's what we'll call the baptized believer. The baptized believer. And this is where I want to spend just a few extra moments, and then I'm going to close. A few extra moments to talk to you about baptism. That's what we're talking about, ultimately. Hopefully, you're learning about this story and details about the story that you might not have known before and you're being challenged about your obedience and about being a spirit-filled Christian, a spirit-led believer, guided through his word, willing to be used as a witness, whether it's to a large crowd or it's to one individual. Hopefully you're learning those lessons. All of us are learning those lessons. But to those of us who know Christ as our Savior, the very first step of obedience to God is the step of following the Lord in baptism. When I was 12 years of age, we went to a United Methodist church growing up. My parents were believers. Uh, I obviously heard the scriptures, and my parents taught me the ways of God, but I didn't have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ until I was 16. But at the age of 12, I went through my church's baptism confirmation class. You had to be able to go through this class for children, and you had to be able to answer certain questions. And I answered those questions, and at the end of doing that, you were then taken before the church during one of the services. Kids come forward, and the minister would reach in, and he would pull water out on his fingers, and he would sprinkle it on our heads as he walked down the aisle. And one by one, we were all sprinkled, and we all became a member of the church. Unfortunately, to me, that was ceremonialism and ritualism. I didn't understand it was about a relationship with Jesus Christ. And it wasn't until I said, as I said, I was 16 years of age, that it really clicked in my head and I knew that I had to believe on Jesus Christ, not to be a member of the church. I had to believe on Jesus Christ to have a relationship with God through his son and to have the gift of eternal life to be my own. And I believed on Jesus as a 16-year-old teenager, and I was baptized later by immersion at the church where I was saved. Dear friends, baptism is not something that's just a ceremony. It's not something that's just a ritual that we do. It's not an initiation rite, like you're trying to get into a sorority or a fraternity. This is a matter of publicly professing your faith before others and letting them know that you are a child of the living God, that you believe in his death, his burial, and his resurrection, and you believe that's your only hope of eternal life with God. Not the waters of the baptistry. Your belief in Jesus Christ is your only hope of eternal life. I want you to notice that this Ethiopian eunuch's baptism was immediate. It was immediate. 
I don't know whether Philip explained baptism, baptism to him as he had done with others earlier in the chapter. I, I don't know if that was going on in this conversation, this gospel conversation, or maybe the Ethiopian just knew that a proselyte to Judaism had to be baptized, and he understood that he had to be baptized. I, I don't know how the conversation of baptism came up, but we just know that he wanted and knew that he was supposed to be baptized. And you know what he does? Immediately, he gets baptized. Now, I understand, <clears throat> you know, we're not on a desert road going to run out of water here before very long. At least I hope not. Not on a desert road going to run out of water here before very long. There's, there's opportunities galore to follow the Lord and believers' baptism, but it is no small matter for a person who has trusted in Jesus to follow him and profess him through the waters of the, of the baptistry. That is the New Testament pattern immediately. Acts chapter 2, verse 38, Peter finishes preaching to all of that, that crowd of people. 3,000 people are saved, and they are baptized. Or you get here to chapter 8. If you look earlier in this chapter, you find that at the end of verse 12, chapter 8, it says both men and women were baptized. If you move along in the text, you find in chapter 9, verse 18, that once Paul, who had met Jesus on the Damascus Road, his eyes were opened so that he could see again. He was baptized. Or you get to chapter 10, where Cornelius is saved, and he's baptized. Or you get to Acts 16, 33, where Philip, excuse me, where Paul has been preaching at Philippi. And the Philippian jailer comes to faith and his family comes to faith and they're baptized. It's immediate. It's by immersion. It's not by sprinkling and it's not by pouring. It's by going down into the water and coming up out of the water. Did you see that when we were reading through it? Look at verse 38. He commanded the chariot to stand still and both Philip and the eunuch went down into the water and he baptized him. Now, when they came up out of the water, and I don't know if you know this or not, but if you're going to pour or you're going to sprinkle, you don't have to get in the water. As a matter of fact, it's not absolutely necessary that you be in the water when you're baptizing somebody. But if they're going to be baptized according to the Scripture, they've got to be in the water. They've got to go under the water. They've got to come out of the water. That's the biblical pattern of baptism. It means to immerse. It was immediate. It was by immersion. It was to identify with Christ and his people. You realize that this baptism doesn't take place in a church meeting? You don't have to have the church together to baptize. You have to have people there to witness it. But you don't have to have the church together to baptize. You understand that Philip didn't stop and say, now wait a minute, we've got to stay here a few days so we can get some of the church to come down and they can all gather around and watch you be baptized. And yet this man's baptism story has been told for the last 2,000 years. Because it got recorded in inspired scripture. It was spontaneous. It was a profession of faith. And can you imagine everyone that was traveling with him, however many there were in this entourage of this important official of Ethiopia, can you imagine everyone watching him as they go down into the water and they come up out of the water? And the impact of this man's testimony on the others who were there can I just tell you that when you follow the Lord and believers' baptism, you're making an impact on other believers who are watching it and other unbelievers who are watching it. This is no inconsequential matter. 
This is no secondary doctrine. It's not a matter of how you get saved. This is a matter that once you're saved, you obey the Lord. You remember like Philip? You obey the Lord immediately by immersion. To identify yourself with Jesus. That brings me to one last stage of this. And that's the missionary witness. I love how this story finishes, and I'm about to finish. At the end of verse 8, excuse me, verse 39, excuse me, verse 39, it says after Philip was caught away, it says this Ethiopian eunuch went on his way rejoicing. I love that. He had a big smile on his face. I'm sure the burden was lifted off of him. He knew now he had a relationship with God through his son, Jesus. He understood that the suffering servant of Isaiah 53 was fulfilled in Jesus Christ, the one who gave his life on the cross of Calvary and was resurrected. And he goes away rejoicing. Now, the bottom line is, is a lot of us look like we've been eating persimmons all morning. Our faces are sort of drawn. When what ought to be showing on our faces today is the joy that's in our hearts. That we are children of the living God, that we are made right with God. And here's the incredible thing. We don't have this in the biblical record. We have this in the historical record. Irenaeus who lived from A.D. 130 to 202, A.D. 130 to 202, one of the early church fathers, wrote that this eunuch became a missionary to his own people to spread the gospel among them. And he did it with a smile on his face because he came to know Jesus. So let me ask you a question as I close here. Just go back with me in chapter 8 for a moment. At the end of verse 36, the Ethiopian asks a question. I'm going to ask you the question. What hinders me from being baptized? I want to ask you that question. What hinders you from being baptized? You trusted in Christ as your Savior. You know you're a child of the living God. You might have been baptized as a child, you might have been baptized by pouring or sprinkling. You might have been baptized before you were saved to become a member of a church. What hinders you from being baptized? You say, Pastor, I'd have to acknowledge that I didn't get saved. Hey, be obedient to the Lord. You say, all those people, well, it doesn't have to be all these people. But it's going to be God's people rejoicing with you. Amen, church? Amen. What hinders you from being baptized? Well, you just got to give us an opportunity. I'm going to give you an opportunity. In just a few minutes when this service is dismissed, I have pastors at both of the exits, back here in the lobby and out here in the Welcome Center. They have a clipboard in their hand. They're the ones with the, the, the lanyard around their necks uh, and got a big tag so that you can identify them as the pastor. Here's what I ask you to do. It's time to take care of this. It's the time to, for me to unfurl the sheet. Remember Dr. Stanley? Unfurl the sheet and show you the spreadsheet with all the names and their addresses and their phone numbers. To un, un, unfurl that sheet and say, hey folks, let's obey God.
Let's do what God tells us to do. Let's set this up. Let's get this on the books. Let's get this done. Let's profess our faith. Let's be obedient to Jesus Christ. Let's do it by immersion. Let's do it as quickly as we possibly can. And let's do it to identify with Jesus and to identify with his people. Let's get baptized. And you just talk to one of those pastors and say, I want to set this up. He's going to get a phone number from you, and we're going to call you, and we're going to set it up with you. We're going to get the time worked out for you. It's time to stop putting it off. Amen? Amen. But for everybody, for those that are watching, can I ask you a question? Do you know Christ as your Savior? Have you believed in Christ? I'm not asking you your denomination. I'm not asking what your works are. I'm not asking how good a person you are or aren't. I'm asking you, have you trusted in Jesus Christ for eternal life? Jesus paid the sin penalty. Sin is no longer the barrier that keeps you away. The only thing keeping you from the eternal life that God offers is you believing in Jesus.